Steve Schaub, a dear friend, he and I meet on Wednesday mornings and pray together. And so when I started working on this series, I said, hey, why don't you help me with this? And uh, those of you that have been here a long time know that Steve's not a preacher, uh, but you also know that he's, in, he's incredible at handling the Word of God and the Word of Truth. And he does a lot of devotions here at our church. He's our men's ministry director as well. And uh, when we started studying this together, uh, I don't know if you've had as much fun as I have, but <laughs> it has been a blast for me. And, uh, and, and Steve just at one point said, I want to do the introduction. And I said, have at it, man. And then last moment week, of weakness. Yeah, last week you were like, what did I do? <laughs> uh, come on, Steve, share with us. All right. Share with us. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right. You guys probably feel like this is the second sermon that you're getting today. <coughs> Prepare yourself because there's probably going to be a third if I know Wayne. All right, let's get Oh, wait. I need, before I get started, I need to grab my sermon notes. I got them just down here. There they are. Okay. Genesis 1-1. No, just kidding. Just kidding. All right, so Wayne already told you that um, we are getting together, we're kind of collaborating on this. Uh, uh, he approached me actually at the end of last year. It's just taken us this long to get our schedules together to actually work on it. But we're going to be going through basically the first three chapters of Revelation. Now, uh, as you're listening, you need to prepare... Uh, a couple things. Number one, grab something to write with. Um, if you're the type of person that likes to write notes in your Bible, if you have a physical hard copy Bible, that's a, that's a book for you younger people who don't know what that is. Uh, great, because then you'll have that with you forever. If you're an electronic person, doing it on your phone, grab a piece of paper. I think maybe the back of the bulletin has some space. But there's some things that we're going to talk about today that are actually preparation for the next seven messages. Because there are some things in those seven messages that are going to be common, that are going to come up again and again and again. And my goal today is really just to introduce and get you prepared for learning, for getting the most you can out of those next seven uh, set of services. All right. How many people, just a show of hands, how many people feel like they have a really decent understanding and grasp of what Revelation is all about? All right, there's actually a couple people brave enough to raise their hands. All right, raise your hand if you have ever in your life read Revelation all the way through. Actually, that's a pretty decent amount. That's more than I expected. Typically, when you announce a sermon series in the book of Revelation, you get two very different responses. There's one or two people in the church that get all excited, and they go and they grab all of their charts and maps and their color highlighters, and they're ready to write down the date that the preacher's going to tell them that Jesus is coming back. <laughs> the other 98% of the people start making plans to visit the relatives that they don't really like and never get to see throughout the rest of the year throughout that sermon series. That's just how it happens. Now, there's a couple reasons, I think, for why that is. Why do people not get excited about learning what's in the book of Revelation? I think there's probably three core reasons. The first one that I hear from people is, it's too hard to understand. I don't get it. There's seven-headed dragons. There's all these stuff that I don't get. Now I know there are some parts of Revelation that are a little bit harder to understand, but if I could be honest with you for just a second, the problem is not 
in the book of Revelation. The problem is that we, as an American Christian church in this society, have not been good about reading the whole Bible. Okay? We pick our favorite verses. We like the ones that we can cross-stitch and put on the wall or the ones that we can put on our Facebook quote that makes everything sound like it's great in our life. But we don't read all the way through the Scripture. I was excited a couple years ago when Wayne started the church on a through-the-Bible reading program because that is what it takes to be grounded in the Word of God, not just reading your favorite New Testament passage. If you read the Old Testament all the way through, and got a grasp of the whole storyline, when you started hitting books like Daniel and Ezekiel and Joel, and they start talking about the last days, you're going to go, oh my gosh, that sounds just like Revelation. Well, duh, it's because it is. It's because Revelation picks up where those Old Testament prophecies end off and finishes the story. It fleshes it out. The Old Testament books that dealt with it were like painting a picture, an abstract picture they couldn't understand. Revelation comes around and fills in the blanks to where you can go, oh, that's what that was supposed to be. Now, having said that, y'all can relax because the first three chapters of Revelation doesn't have any seven-headed dragons in it, okay? There's a couple things that are symbolic, but... The first three chapters have training wheels, and they actually tell you what the symbols mean. So it shouldn't be that hard, all right? So we're not going to be afraid of what's in Revelation, okay? The only thing we need to do is hear it and obey it, or as the book of Revelation puts it, he who has an ear, let him hear. So I'm hopeful that you are hearing and you're willing to obey. Reason number two that people don't like to be in the book of Revelation, or at least this is what I've heard from some people. It's too judgy. Okay, some people get just a little bit into Revelation and they're like, whoa, what are all these judgments? Earthquakes, poison water, flying scorpions. Whatever happened to the Jesus that just loves everybody? Well, I need to let you in on a little tiny secret that you may not have heard. God hasn't changed. That same God who pronounced judgment and set ten plagues on Pharaoh when he hardened his heart against God's command is the same God of the New Testament who tells us three times in the book of Hebrews, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. In fact, we don't hear it much, and maybe we don't read these sections of the gospel, but Jesus pronounced a lot of judgments when he was walking on this earth sometimes against entire cities. He overturned tables. He whipped people, all right? He was not the gentle Jesus, meek and mild that we sometimes get out of our Sunday school programs, all right? Paul, speaking to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, warns them pretty sternly. Okay, and these are believers. These are not, this is not the world, all right? This is Paul writing to a group of believers and he tells them this, and this is not my words, so don't, you know, throw, throw darts at me. This is Paul speaking through the Holy Spirit. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, sadly, we live in a culture that promotes the idea that kind of calling any kind of behavior immoral is itself immoral. There's a few things that society still is willing to condemn, but frankly, that list is getting shorter every day. Have you noticed that? Some of the things that would have produced outrage and disgust a generation ago, now we're holding parades for them. We're celebrating. We're celebrating sin and depravity and immorality. Now that's the world. But unfortunately, that culture is also seeping into the church. I mean, not to the point that we're holding parades. But I think it's still shocking to us to hear that God judges people. I think today's church has the attitude that when I accept Jesus... God's just okay with me, and my life's just going to be great. And that is not what the New Testament teaches. Now, the vast majority of judgment we read about in Revelation is directed towards unbelievers who stubbornly refuse to listen to God's clear command to repent. And eternal judgment is only for those who reject Christ. But, at the same time, it doesn't take a whole lot of New Testament reading to learn that God also does not hesitate to discipline any of his children who are willfully disobedient. Again, that front-to-back reading of the Bible to develop that consistent idea of who God is and what his relationship to us is. All right, that's number two. Two reasons why people don't. The last one is, what I hear people say, why they don't read the book of Revelations, it's not practical. I need to know what to do today, not at the end of the world. Well, I've got great news for you then. Revelation is very practical, and it's full of instruction for your day-to-day life. Now, perhaps you missed it because you didn't receive the super-secret Revelation crypto decoder ring. (laughs) Nobody under 50 laughed at that one. Nobody knows what a decoder ring is. All right, never mind. I'm only kidding. But I'm serious about Revelation being practical. And this series is going to focus on the most practical aspects. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are very practical. Now the problem is, just like any other command in Scripture, once you hear it, then you're on the hook to obey it, right? If you haven't heard it, you can't be expected to obey it, but you're going to hear it. And then you're expected to obey it. Mark Twain once famously said, It ain't the parts of the Bible that I can understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. And you're going to understand a little bit more when we're done. Now, not being familiar with the book of Revelation is unfortunate, I think, because I just can't believe that Jesus went to the trouble of sending us this book of the Bible, this letter to his church, in order to confuse and frustrate us. That doesn't seem to make sense. In fact, the very first couple verses of Revelation gives us a promise, and it's this, Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So here's a spoiler alert. 
The purpose of the whole book of Revelation is to encourage believers who are going through struggles, and they need the assurance that God is going to make everything work out okay in the end. Now, if that describes you, then I guess you can prepare to be blessed. All right, in order to get the most we can out of the coming chapters, I'm going to help to remove any obstacles to understanding Revelation in general and these passages in specific. So today, we're just going to walk through the who, what, when, where, why of this book. But first, before we even get into that, we're just going to do what Revelation says, or at least what it says will bless us. We're going to read it aloud. Well, we're going to do that part at least. It's up to you guys to obey it. All right, so let's just read. If you have your Bibles, we're in Revelation chapter 1, and we're just going to read the whole chapter straight through. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. 
Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, you see why he's, he's already explaining everything in there for you? Easy stuff. All right, so we're now just going to answer some questions about this whole book just so we know how to start interpreting it because people get into trouble with Revelation of interpreting it incorrectly because they don't understand some of these basic foundational things about the book itself. All right, let's start with the who and the where. The author of the book is, of course, who would you say is the author of the book? I'm just, okay, John. No, John's not the author of the book. <laughs> okay, God. Specifically, God the Son, okay, Jesus. Jesus uh, gives the revelation to John, and then John is to write down what he sees, right? All right. So, uh, most biblical scholars would identify that John as John the Apostle. There are a couple other minor theories, but they don't really uh, change the interpretation. It says that he was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. <clears throat> most people would interpret that to mean that he had been exiled there as punishment for preaching about Jesus. Now, we'll get into the why of that a little bit later. The who the letter is addressed to is actually a list of seven specific, definite, real churches. They were in uh, the, the area of what was then Asia Minor, what we know as the country of Turkey today. So there were seven congregations scattered around this area, and this letter was written to all of them. It was a uh, circular letter. It was meant to be distributed amongst all of them. Even though it had some very specific parts for each church, all of them would have read it and gotten everything that was in there. When we look at this and we say, okay, it was written to seven churches, we need to adjust our mindset a little bit about what church is. Okay, This book was not addressed to 21st century Americans sitting on padded seats, sipping lattes, in air-conditioned million-dollar worship centers. That is not who this letter was written to. These churches were probably more like a collection of small groups meeting secretly in houses with a set of elders or pastors who circulated among them, teaching them. They didn't have praise bands. They didn't have big screens. They didn't have VBS. They didn't have access to the Bible as we do today. They didn't have religious freedom. Most of them were facing serious persecution for believing in Jesus, and they could not meet openly. <clears throat> in fact, I think it's probably a good time to remind ourselves, biblically speaking, we are not guaranteed religious freedom. Historically, religious freedom is a very rare event. If you look at the span of history, most people throughout history in all the countries of the world <clears throat> have not had religious freedom for one reason or another. But we are still commanded okay, to live a godly life in spite of persecution and to follow Jesus. All right? 
I personally, I'm just, this is my soapbox, okay? This is, now this is out of uh, biblical exegesis. This is Steve's opinion, okay? Steve's opinion is, I will personally be surprised if our grandchildren don't face a level of persecution for living for Jesus that we have not seen in this country for 200 years. Think about that when you're teaching them how to live life. Hint, teach them to read their Bible all the way through frequently and to obey it. All right, so that takes care of the who and the where. Now the what. All right, just like most of the New Testament, Revelation was written in a letter. It was written to real people in real churches. Revelation's a little unusual in that it was written to seven specific churches rather than just one. So, like I said, it's what we would call an open letter. And like the rest of the scripture, properly interpreting Revelation depends on remembering that. We also need to keep in mind that Revelation is written in a specific style. This style is way different than all of the other New Testament letters. And this is probably one of the reasons people don't get into it very much. The style of Revelation is called apocalyptic literature. It's not very common today, so it seems strange to us, but it was very common in that part of the world at the time that it was written. And the believers in those churches would have recognized it immediately and known instinctively how to interpret what was written in there. But we need to talk about it a little bit. So, what's the first thing that comes into your mind when you hear the word apocalypse? Anybody? End of the world, I heard. All right. Nuclear war, floods, zombies, tornadoes that drop sharks out of the air. Well, it's kind of funny because I picked this shirt this morning not even thinking about out it, but it kind of talks about the end of the world. So it was kind of ironically funny. Believe it or not, the original meaning... And this, this word apocalypse <clears throat> comes straight from the Greek. The original meaning of apocalypse and the way that it's used in Revelation in all apop- apocalyptic literature is not end of the world doomsday. That's not the point. Instead, the word apocalypse means to reveal something that was previously hidden. Okay? It's not doom and gloom, terror. It's I'm going to open something up to you that you need to know that you haven't previously known. So, this is the mindset. Think back to that one special Christmas. Okay? Your parents wrapped a super special present with your name on it and set it under the tree. And for two weeks, you walked past that present every day wondering, what could that Could it be that one thing that I asked for that I didn't think that they would buy for me? All right? On Christmas morning, you're finally allowed to tear off all that shiny paper, and you have an apocalypse. Okay? You have a revealing. Okay? You know what's inside there now. Your parents knew all along what was inside there. They wanted you to know what was inside there. But they had a plan for when you were going to find out what was inside there. That's exactly what the book of Revelation is. The entire story of Scripture, from Genesis 1-1 to the last word in Revelation, is a progressive story 
of God revealing himself, revealing his relationship to us, and his redemption, not just of us, but of the entire creation that when Adam and Eve sinned was thrown into chaos and corruption. Revelation is the apocalypse, the revealing of God's final plan for how he's going to fix everything. There's a, there's a song, I'm not sure if I can remember it all, but it basically says, it, it talks about, um, it's kind of like a play or a, a movie that you, everything's gone wrong. And just the moment that you think everything is unfixable and it's going to end in destruction, the hero pops out on stage and he makes everything right and he, and he solves the unsolvable dilemma. Okay, that's revelation. It's tying everything up with a bow of how God makes everything right in the end. So it should be a good encouragement. I know that it must have been an encouragement to those early churches. All right, so when? The book of Revelation was written in the first century. That's from uh, 0 to 100 A.D., probably towards the end of that, probably specifically around the, the uh, year 96, okay? Uh, there was a whole series of Roman emperors up to that point who had instituted lots of persecutions against Christians. Nero being famous uh, for his brutality. He would take Christians and he would douse them with uh, oil and pitch and tie them to stakes around where he was going to have a garden party. And at night he would light them on fire and they would serve as the torches for his garden parties. Okay? Uh, the, the emperors that followed after him, some were worse, some were not as bad, but they all persecuted Christians. Um, some more so because they felt Christians were not loyal. Uh, the emperor at the end of the century, Domitian, had instituted a new religion where everybody in the empire was supposed to worship his family line, okay? His father and his grandfather, who had also been emperors, okay? Not doing that, not worshiping these Roman emperors was seen as disloyalty, okay? And that was not tolerated in Rome, all right? So the, pers the persecution had been going on for a long time, so try to put yourself in their shoes when they receive this letter that's talking about how God comes through and, and wipes out evil and makes everything right in the end. How did that appear to them? All right, so then the question is, well, why? Why was the book written? Well, the obvious answer is found in the first verse, Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. So his reason was to reveal God's plan for the future. But Revelation is not just some cosmic timeline that we can use to guess when Christ is coming back. And if you know your Bible, you know that Jesus said we're not going to be able to figure that out anyway, right? All right, but keeping in mind this is apocalyptic literature, there is frequently a why behind the why. And the believers that received this letter understood that. Um, we get a glimpse of future events, but so what? Why would we want to do that? Well, keep in mind again the situation these believers were experiencing. It's been 60 years since Jesus died, walked among them as the risen Savior, and then ascended back to heaven. Jesus has been gone 60 years. 
a lot of the early believers fully expected him to return within their lifetime, if not within a year. Some of we read in the New Testament, but Paul had to admonish some people who would just quit their jobs and were just sitting around waiting for Jesus to come back. So that was the mindset. Now that hadn't happened. Um, all but one of the original apostles had been martyred for following Jesus, so not a great track record for Christians. Okay, here's the equation. Follow Jesus, get martyred. That's how it worked in the first century. The church everywhere was also being bombarded with false teachers. After the initial apostles died, other people were walking in. False teachers were stepping in and saying, yeah, we know that Paul told you this, but it wasn't complete. Now we need to tell you, you also need, and they would give them their version, which for the most part was heretical and contrary to what Paul had taught, what Jesus had taught, okay? So they had this horrible situation they were facing. In addition to that, 30 years prior, the Jews in Jerusalem had staged a revolt against Rome. Really, really up there in terms of bad ideas. Okay? Rome came in and just obliterated Jerusalem. And of course, that did not make the Jews uh, on good terms with the Romans. So, and the Christians were considered just another you know, sect of the Jews. So now they were persecuted from the Jews and the Romans. Okay? Alright, so imagine living in that and then expecting, being expected to worship the family line of the emperor or else. Alright? If you think you need daily encouragement in your life, what about these believers? They needed it bad. Revelation does that. It encourages, it exhorts, it challenges these believers to keep following Jesus no matter what. It's not a pat them on the head, everything's going to be okay book by any stretch of the imagination. God never lies to us. God tells us to expect persecution. And he told these believers, what you're going through is not strange. But it also paints a, pros a progressive picture of Christ as a conquering, world-ruling, messianic king who finally comes and finally rids the world of the devil, sin, and death. And he finishes his father's redeeming work for all creation. At that same time, this king knows the details of each church's situation. He walks among them. He calls them to partner with him and to reclaim their role as image bearers of God which is what we lost in Genesis chapter 1. Do you think that was welcome news? I think it probably was. So that is all the who, what, when, where, and why of the book of Revelation. Let's talk just really quickly about symbolism, because I know people get hung up on some of the symbols, but we just got a couple of them that we got to go over here. All right. It's common in apocalyptic literature to use a fair amount of symbolism and that represents either real people, places, and things, or it could represent a concept or a type of something. Uh, I tried to think of, of a good example in our, in our modern mind. Okay. Uh, and I came up with this. During the Civil War, uh, there was a general in the Confederacy, General Jackson. 
at some point during the war, he was given a nickname. What nickname was he given? Stonewall Jackson. All right. General Jackson was given the symbolic name Stonewall Jackson. Is that because he had magically transformed into brick and mortar? Somebody say no. <laughs> no, no. That's not why. The idea was that his character in battle was so impressively courageous that a stone wall was the closest thing that the people who saw him could think of to compare him to. It's that type of symbolism that we see in the book of Revelation. Okay? It's comparative. Uh, some of them are referring to real people, places, and things, but the, the meaning is somewhat obscured, but again, not if you understand the Old Testament prophecies. So in chapter 1, Jesus is described like this. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. I don't think it's too hard to understand that we're not supposed to take this literally. Okay, Jesus is not standing there with a sword coming out of his mouth. Okay, they're trying to say something about the character, about the nature of Jesus in this aspect. And remember, Revelation is about Jesus coming back, not as the suffering servant that he came the first time, this time as the conquering king of the world. Okay? So we get this picture. It's very similar to what we see when he went up on the mountain top with Peter, James, and John and was transfigured, right? Blindingly white. They couldn't hardly stand to look at it because everything was so white. Okay? And again, we see this in the Old Testament prophecies. All right. It's meant to reveal the majesty and the power and the glory of the Son of God. It's just a super poetic and powerful way of saying Jesus is awesome. Okay, we don't use language like this today. Back then, it was expected and it was completely understood. All right, and then in chapter one, chapters 1 and 3, we see two symbols that reference the church. Uh, the interpretation is made easier for us by the fact that there's symbolism spelled out in chapter 1. It says this, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, remember Jesus is holding the seven stars, and the seven golden lampstands that he's walking among. Now it tells you exactly what they are. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, that's easy. That's like an open book test, right? It already tells you the answer. It gives you the answer before you even start. So anytime we see lampstands in these chapters, we immediately know, oh, he's just talking about the church. Churches, okay. Each church is its own lampstand. It references, again, you've got to know your Old Testament. It references the holy place in the Old Testament temple or the tabernacle. There was a 
a uh, golden lampstand that had seven branches. And it was to be kept lit at all times. That was one of the priest's main jobs, was to make sure that that lampstand, the seven lights, were kept lit all the time. That should that picture there should trigger in our mind, oh, didn't Jesus say something about us and light and not light not going out? Uh, let's see, where was that again? We should start flipping through our New Testament, and then we'd find in Matthew, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, a lamp stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, Wayne and I had an interesting discussion when we were going over this section. He made the point that we're not the light. Jesus is the light. And then I made the point, well, Jesus said we're the light. Jesus literally said, you are the light. And so we kind of went back and forth with that, like, oh, how do we work that, one, that out? Because that doesn't seem right in our head to say that we're the light. And then Wayne, being the brilliant uh, expositor of Scripture that he is, gave me this analogy. And I, I love analogies because that's the way my brain works. Jesus is like the sun shining up in the sky. That's the source of the light. Okay, All the light that we have on earth comes from the sun. We are like the moon. Okay, The moon gives light at night, right? But it doesn't give its own light. It reflects the light of the sun in that same way we are the light of the world, but not in our own power. Okay, We can only be the light insofar as we're reflecting Jesus' light. So we need to be accurate in that. Okay, now, uh, as far as the stars being the angels of the church, I'm just going to go over real quickly. There are kind of two schools of thought on this. Uh, one is each church has been assigned a specific heavenly being to watch over it. The, when it says the stars are angels, that it literally means angels. And there's angels watching over every single church. The implication would be everybody of believers is probably assigned a spiritual being to watch over them. Mm. The other interpretation is that it's a double metaphor. Okay? The star refers to angels, but then the angels actually refers to the pastor, the lead teacher in each church. I lean towards that interpretation, but I wouldn't fall on my sword over it, and it doesn't really affect how we understand Revelation. So just know that there's those two schools of thought, and... Study your Bibles and come to your best conclusion as far as you can. All right. That covers the introduction. Now we're ready to start the meat of the message. Are you, are you settled in? Are you ready for that? And you're like, okay, we're not going to have lunch today, are we? All right. There's just a couple points that I want to go over to help you get the most out of the next seven messages. First one is this. Repetition is significant. Repetition is significant. Repetition is significant. Repetition is? Good job. At least some of you have stayed awake so far. All right. General rule of biblical interpretation. If God repeats himself, it's not because he forgot. 
It's his way of saying, wake up, pay attention, this is important. So in chapters 2 and 3, each of the churches received their own specific, unique apocalypse from Jesus. And they all follow a specific pattern that we recognize. So when Wayne goes through the next, uh, the first church, look for these patterns. And when he goes through the next church, look for these patterns. Look for these patterns and see how they're, how they're similar, how they're different. Okay, it always starts out this. The words of him who, that's how every letter starts. Each church gets to see a different aspect of Jesus revealed. So together they give us a complete picture of this Messiah King. Pay attention to who Jesus is, and I would say come prepared to have your picture of him changed as he reveals himself. Number, number two, Jesus says, I know something to each church. Jesus is intimately aware of each church's circumstances, just like he is ours. Notice, when you read that, Jesus is sympathetic to the struggles they're facing while still holding them accountable to be obedient. The next part of each letter is something positive about each church. You're doing great in this area. So, now, the exception to that is one church doesn't get that at all. One of these seven churches doesn't get any positives at all. So pay attention to why that is. But the ones that do reminds us. He wants to commend us. He wants, it's like a parent. I've heard it said from uh, somebody, sometimes you've got to look really hard to find your kid doing something right so you can praise them for it. And that's true in parenting. I think it's true sometimes for God, too. But when we do something right, he does want to commend us for it. He's looking for that. The next thing that he says to each of these churches, yet I hold this against you. There's a stern rebuke for where each church is failing to follow Jesus. Now, there are two churches that are the exception to this rule. There are two churches that don't receive any rebuke. Jesus doesn't say you're doing this wrong to two churches. So what's different about those two churches when you start reading? Pay attention to that. Next, the, uh, the heat gets turned up a little bit. And Jesus says, therefore, repent or dot, dot, dot. Jesus, we need to recognize this. Jesus does not ignore our disobedience. And he doesn't pat us on the head and say, well, at least they tried. Sometimes we have this picture of God that he does that. That is not God. He commands repentance when we're doing something wrong. And that means he expects the actions to match the profession. Okay? In the Old Testament, there's a part where God says, Stop flooding my altar with tears because I'm not answering your prayer. Stop doing this wrong and then I'll listen to you. Now we look at that sometimes. Oh, that's Old Testament. God doesn't work that way. No, God doesn't change. God's the same today and forever. All right? When he calls us to repentance, he expects that repentance to not just mean, oh, I'm sorry, or I'm sorry I got caught, and tears, but a change. Um, as the, the common advice would be, if you find yourself in a hole, the first thing to do is stop digging. Okay? 
If God's telling you you're doing something wrong, the first thing you need to do is, we'll stop doing that then. You've got to make a turn, 180 degrees. Recognize the difference between true and false repentance. The next thing he says to all the churches, to him who overcomes, I will dot, dot, dot. There are specific promises given to each church when they make the effort to overcome, when they do, when they follow through on that repentance, when they persevere through the perse persecution. Okay? What I would say is avoid the idea that it's God's responsibility to keep us from sin and grow us spiritually. There's a partnership here. God works with us, but he expects us to do some work as well. We don't just sit back and say, well, God, you know, make me a godly person. There's things that he tells us, well, if you want to be a godly person, then do this. And then I'm going to help you do that. But he doesn't do it without our participation. The last thing that he says is something that we also need to hear. He who has an ear, let him hear what he says to the churches. Every single church gets the same thing. Every church is exhorted to hear and to obey and to act on it. And so are we. So to wrap up, here's what I would say. We need to realize how we live matters. Jesus is still walking among his churches. That includes Christ's first church. So what is he seeing? And what does he want to tell us? More importantly, are we listening and are we willing to obey?